Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. People can go out and, and still maintain some physical distancing. For the sake of mental health, physical health, that is actually important. Start doing testing. I don't know what the big problem is with, with them testing. It's frustrating as anything. Moving forward as a society, we need to get back to paying people to go to work. We want you to be safe and secure in the workplace, and we want you to be back in the workplace. Now we feel like, okay, people can move around the province, but we need to protect our borders. We're here to announce uh, uh, the beginning of our uh, opening up of elective surgeries, the, the phase two of the BC Restart plan. The testing remains a very key aspect of the next phase because we want to tread carefully and if there's any inkling of cases or clusters, provinces will be homing in on those really, really fast so that we don't get um, any further escalations after we've calmed down the first wave. So that is going to be of primary interest. That was Canada's chief public health officer, Dr. Theresa Tam. British Columbia will begin reopening its economy this week. First, there will be some medical services and then provincial parks later in the week. By the long weekend, people are going to be able to get together in small groups again. Then hair salons, retail stores and museums will begin to reopen their doors. All of this will be allowed to continue as long as the COVID-19 cases remain low. So how is BC going to achieve that and what will public health officials be looking for to make sure this works. Joining me now is BC Health Minister Adrian Dix. Thanks for joining us, Minister. Hello, Mercedes. Your province has been remarkably successful in fighting COVID-19. What do you attribute that success to? I think consistently we've followed the science. We started in our five regional health authorities under the direction of our Deputy Minister, of Dr. Bonnie Henry, who uh, your viewers from BC will know very well by now. Uh, following the science in January. In February, we talked about testing. We did more testing uh, than any other jurisdictions in North America at a time when we needed to find and break links of transmission, mostly linked to people coming back from international travel. And so we've significantly followed the science since then. We've kept our eyes open. So when the situations occurred in Italy and in Quebec around spring break, we were changes then. So we're going to continue to do that. And so we, we have a, a less closed economy, and now we're proceeding very carefully to some reopening. Uh, first, of course, uh, in the health system itself, with the re, with redoing and starting up uh, what are called scheduled surgeries or elective surgeries again. And we're going to start that process after the May long weekend. Well, and I think it's remarkable because you didn't shut down as much, and yet you've come out with better numbers and you're ready to reopen. When you look at other provinces, what advice do you have for them as they begin their reopening process? Well, I think you have to be very careful. There's no vaccine. There's no cure for COVID-19. And so the steps we have to take now are the steps we all have to take for a significant period in front of us in, uh, in, uh, in dealing with this situation. Physical distancing, that's our friend, that's our tool to, con to operate a little bit more and more openly and function more as an economy while we're dealing with this situation. I wanna be very respectful of all the jurisdictions in Canada. One of the reasons that we were more successful in BC, perhaps in stopping the spread of the virus is we learned from Quebec, which had an earlier spring break. A lot of people came back from Quebec 
from France, from the United States, from other places, and they came back sick. And that warning from Quebec allowed us to take very decisive action in advance of our school spring break here in BC. Do you think that maybe the approach was backward then in terms of shutting down the economy instead of establishing some of the things that you did in terms of physical distancing that other provinces took and that was taken federally? I, I think we've all had a mission in Quebec and Ontario has been more serious in terms of spread. And so I think you have to deal with the facts in front of you. And, and very decisive action was taken in BC. And leisure action in some areas and other jurisdictions. As you know, people returning to BC from international travel uh, have a, a, a very uh, significantly enforced 14-day uh, South isolation. But 100 people right now are in quarantine in hotels that we've provided here in BC to ensure that they, if they can't manage that self-isolation home, they do so. We've taken, provincial public servants have taken uh, care of that responsibility, even though in many respects, it's largely federal jurisdiction because we do not want to see the introduction of COVID-19 in addition to the COVID-19 that's in the community now. So I, I think uh, everyone's had their own uh, measures to take. I very much admire what, what other provinces, but their circumstances uh, are different from ours. And we're uh, dealing in a science-based way, and we're going to continue to do that uh, in, the, in the days and weeks and months and maybe years to come. Do you think that the federal government should have taken a more aggressive approach at the borders then? I mean, you took it into your own hands as a province, but others didn't. Should they have had people at the airports uh, more carefully monitoring where people were going, checking to see if they were actually staying in quarantine, demanding to see the kinds of plans you did, and refusing to release them without them? Well, I think, uh, I think these are the steps we need to take. And, uh, and so I want to be very, very uh, respectful of everyone. I think we've had a very good relationship with the federal government. But it's our strong view that uh, the self-isolation of people returning from international travel is actually quite a difficult thing to do. I'm curious about interprovincial travel because beautiful British Columbia, I mean, who doesn't like to vacation in the Okanagan or in Vancouver, but you're still saying you're not ready for visitors from other provinces. Are you looking at the possibility of putting things like checkpoints in place, as Quebec has done, to monitor who's coming into the province? Oh, this is our country, right? This is our country. And, and so uh, I don't believe that we can treat uh, provincial borders like international borders. Secondly, our friends in Alberta have done many, many of the things that we've done. We've had very parallel processes. So uh, we in Alberta, we're in daily contact with officials in Alberta, so we're working together on these things. So I don't think we can treat the Alberta border like the U.S. border. We have, we don't have any intention to do so. But that said, people shouldn't travel for non-essential travel right now. There may be times when it's appropriate to go to the but our advice is uh, don't do it right now. I'd like to ask you about the Canada-U.S. border because it is scheduled to reopen right now on May 21st. That's when the agreement expires, but the federal government is saying that they don't see a reopening anytime soon. If there's a situation where the United States opens their borders but Canada doesn't, Canada could prevent Americans from coming here but not Canadians going to the U.S. What tracking measures would you look at putting in place and are you concerned that you might have British Columbians going across to Washington, going across to cabins or cottages in the United States and then coming home when the COVID rates there are so high? Well, let's be clear. If you leave Canada and want to return, unless you're in doing essential work, such as truckers, for example, if you, unless you're doing that, you have 
have to be in self-isolation for 14 days. So from a bank, if you think you want to go down to Bellingham to get groceries, you're going to have to come home, take your groceries, and stay self-isolated for 14 days. And I don't see that rule changing anytime soon. Minister, we appreciate your time and that information from BC. We wish you the best of luck in reopening. Hey, thank you very much. Take care. It's going to be hard to, to hold back people going back to their, their cottages. I've said before, I'm getting calls about uh, why should I pay my taxes if I'm not allowed to go up to my cottage? Uh, on the other note, the, the people that have businesses up there rely on cottagers to keep their businesses going. That was Ontario Premier Doug Ford on people visiting their cottages during this pandemic. For weeks, Canadians across the country have been in lockdown, told to stay at home. Many have been fined for sitting on park benches or even letting their children play in a park. On top of that, provinces have banned non-residents from visiting. These measures were put in place with the intention of flattening the curve of COVID-19. But have some of those restrictions crossed a line with our civil liberties? Joining me now is Michael Bryant, Executive Director and General Counsel for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Welcome to the show, Mr. Bryant. Good to be here. We're going into our eighth week of COVID-19 that has millions of Canadians staying in home, businesses with their doors closed, and bans on certain outdoor areas like parks and recreation areas. What's your biggest concern when it comes to civil liberties around these closures? This is a public health matter. And while there's a role to be played by police, uh, as well as by bylaw officers. Um, it, 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 in fact, is to uh, educate the public, warn people, but it shouldn't be about uh, punishing, ticketing, entering people's homes, violating their privacy rights, violating their liberty and constitutional rights. But, but it has become a policing pandemic has developed in Canada uh, where the... Um, uh, powers are drafted in a way that is overbroad and vague, or the people who are uh, getting these new powers are enforcing them in a way uh, that's uh, absurd and has nothing to do with public health and uh, is way too much about uh, 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 abusing power uh, at a time where we, in fact, should be trying to come together and, um, and, and do our best to follow the guidelines, but this isn't this isn't a public order crisis, and yet it's somehow become that in the eyes of uh, some uh, police and bylaw enforcers. Uh, some would say if there's not a serious consequence like a heavy fine, people won't listen. What would be your response to them? The reality is that criminologists and social scientists have shown that in Canada, at least, uh, these deterrents, they don't work. Uh, I get the logic of them, and you can see why you would need to have that tool being used as a last resort in case somebody decided to try and hold a you know gigantic free concert in the middle of a city. Uh, but, but that's not what the tickets have been handed out for. It's been handed out to people in parks because they were recreating in the park versus walking through the park versus sitting in the park. And in fact, they were just in a park and they weren't dangerous to anybody. But the letter of the law... Um, it was argued as being violated. So 
did all these tickets being handed out make us safer? No. What do you make of these interprovincial travel bans? I mean, if you're here in Ontario, and I can tell you if I look behind me out there on the bridge, you can see the police making sure that people don't come into Quebec unless they live there or have essential business. Uh, some have questioned whether those interprovincial travel bans are, in fact, a violation of the Charter, which is supposed to guarantee freedom of movement. What's your take on that? Well, we didn't have a, a bunch of uh, case law and jurisprudence and constitutional law developed around this interprovincial trade. There was um, a bunch of thinking and laws that had developed, but we never had this happen in Canada ever since we've had uh, Section 6, the mobility rights under the Charter. So uh, we at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association also ha had the, the challenge that a lot of journalists have, which is what is actually happening on the ground? When uh, you know you're getting third-hand reports from people, you're getting some information from the police, but it's not entirely clear. So, you know, we were basically looking and waiting for the right case to challenge it. Uh, but now, uh, what um, Newfoundland has done uh, has left us uh, with the view that uh, their Bright, new set of laws. Walk us through what Newfoundland has done there for viewers who aren't familiar with that. Sure. What Newfoundland has done is uh, recently enacted a set of laws that we think are just blatantly unconstitutional. Uh, they are overbroad. They don't create exceptions. Uh, there is not the necessity for these new laws, and there also isn't um, uh, any proportionality. And amongst other things, uh, what Newfoundland has done, but other provinces have done it too, is um, treat their border as if it were a foreign border and they had the power to stop people from entering and arresting them and sending them back and that's just not the case the other thing they did which is um quite incredible is that they have given to um police the unconstitutional power to enter people's castles you know a, a person's home is a castle to enter people's homes without a warrant and that is clearly unconstitutional there's no question so, does so that, we are in the process of challenging it then yeah we're in the process of retaining newfoundland council and should any day now be uh launching an application to uh, try and get this unconstitutional law struck down this is this is not canada this is not right this is not constitutional and amongst other things it is not necessary when it comes to within provinces, I know a lot of people are wondering about being able to go to their cottage. They're being told they're not allowed to. What advice do you have for cottage owners? Well, I, I don't like to advise people to uh, get themselves a big ticket or get arrested. So I, I, I'm, I'm very sorry to say that even though it is our view that police have never been given the power and no city has been given the power to stop people from going to their own privately owned property or otherwise to go in and out of a city or otherwise travel through a jurisdiction, uh, although we think that that is unconstitutional uh i you know uh the best one can do is 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 ask questions when stopped but if the police order someone to turn around or else will arrest you uh then you know you're you're um, putting yourself in a position where you could face uh either a criminal charge or a, or a very serious ticket so i can't advise people to um to put themselves through that kind of prejudice but i can ask the um the mayors to consult with their general counsel. Okay, Mr. Bryant, we have to wrap it up there. Thank you for joining us and sharing your perspective. Uh, if you want to get more information, ccla.org.
Thank you. Let's remember to take care of ourselves and of each other. Let's remember that it's okay to ask for help and to feel sad and frustrated and alone. We are all in this together. And while we do need to practice physical distancing, we don't have to suffer alone. The federal government has announced millions for virtual mental health help for those in need during this pandemic. Stress, anxiety and depression, the impact of COVID-19 is threatening an echo pandemic as Canadians of all regions and all across the country struggle to cope. Is Canada ready to handle the coming mental health crisis? Joining me now is Margaret Eaton, the national CEO of the Mental Health Association of Canada. Thank you for joining us, Margaret. Thank you, Mercedes. Great to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about what kind of effect you're seeing from COVID-19 uh, in terms of symptoms that people are expressing, but also in terms of the scale of how many people are experiencing mental health issues right now? Well, thanks very much. There was an interesting poll by Angus Reid last week that showed that 50% of Canadians are reporting worsening mental health over these recent weeks. So they're experiencing worry, anxiety, and stress. And what we're seeing across the country in our local CMHA branches, we uh, are in 330 regions across the country, is um, a much increased number of phone calls coming in. Um, in uh, Nova Scotia, for example, uh, an average day, they might get 25 calls. They had one day where they got 700 calls. And in a meeting I had last week with the provinces, uh, those numbers are continuing steady. Uh, there has not been a dip in calls to our crisis lines. So we've been scrambling to make sure that people get care uh, virtually and on the phone. I'm curious to know how do you find that virtual care is working for people because lots of people are used to sitting down maybe talking to someone in person. What's the difference with doing that over the internet or over text? You know, it, it isn't ideal. Um, in many ways, we want to be close to each other and um, be face to face. But in this situation, we can't be. And so um, being on the phone with someone or in video conferences we're doing right now can be a very useful substitute. I'm wondering about going forward where the resources will be for mental health, because even before this happened, it could be weeks to months for uh, a person to be able to get in to see somebody who can help them and who can talk to them. And now you could have this whole additional wave of people who perhaps didn't need that help before requiring it now. Is Canada and are the provinces set up to deal with this wave that's coming? Well, we were very pleased to see the federal government announce further funding for mental health, and that is going towards uh, an online hub called Wellness Together Canada, and that is providing some virtual support. We've also seen some of the provinces step up. Um, Quebec just announced $31 million for mental health. Uh, the Alberta government has announced about $50 million. Ontario similarly has stepped up with about $10 million, and the BC government as well has stepped up um, with, uh, I believe, over $10 million in funding. So there is a real uh, recognition that the mental health impacts are going to be severe. And uh, it's the smaller provinces that we're actually more worried about right now uh, that may not have the, the big budgets uh, that would allow them to invest in mental health in the same way that some of the deeper pocketed provinces have. 
I'm, I'm wondering, is, is there potentially a bottleneck in terms of the number of care providers who are out there, even with this funding? Um, you know, that's been quite wonderful to see. I know that many um, masters in social work programs, for example, the students have stepped up, uh, the recent graduates, um, and there are many people sitting at home right now um, who have these degrees, who I believe are being recruited for programs across the country. So I think the people are out there, and the issue will be the resources to fund those services. It's great to hear about that kind of innovation. I know a lot of people who are at home and, and waiting for things to open back up will tell you that maybe they've been having a little bit more wine or a little bit more uh, beer or, or their drink of choice or other things to try to deal with the pandemic. And I know a lot of folks are wondering, what's the line between somebody having a few drinks and where it starts to become a problem where you're going to that as a result of stress? Yes, um, you know, there are uh, guidelines for, um, you know, how much is an okay amount to be drinking. Um, and uh, the Center for Substance Abuse even has um, uh, a little test that you can take. But I would say um, if you are uh, in a situation where you um, are uh, Finding that your use of substances interferes with your daily life, with your ability to connect with people or to do your work or your volunteer activities, that's when it's time to think about uh, whether you need some support. And it is a big concern of ours right now. We were already in an opioid crisis prior to the pandemic. And so um, we are already starting to hear on our phone lines that there are um, people who are struggling with, with opioids and with substances right now. Um, and we're concerned that we're going to see um, incidences of increases in overdoses and uh, in suicide as a result. Uh, it's certainly very concerning and, and something that we'd like to ask you. We, we unfortunately only have a few moments left, but what advice do you have for people at home who are struggling? It's really important that we reach out to each other. This is Canadian Mental Health Week, and our theme for this week is social connection and that value of reaching out to others, because we know that isolation and loneliness um, can uh, exacerbate existing mental health conditions and can uh, create mental health conditions in those who don't have them. So we need each other right now, now more than ever. So we say okay. pick up the phone, call, text, get in touch. Thank you so much for that advice, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mercedes. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us. For the West Block, I'm Mercedes Stevenson.